Well, today we are going to continue in our study of the book of Genesis. So if you want to, in your Bible or scripture journal, find your way to Genesis chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 18 this morning and go through the end of chapter 10. Uh, Real quickly, I forgot to mention this in my announcements along with, I should bring more notes for my announcements (laughs) next time. Uh, But I know for many of you, you guys have been praying for my, my daughter Carly, who was in the hospital again. Uh, for breathing issues. Uh, she is doing much better. She's home, um, and hopefully we're going to figure some things out with her health, but she is, she's doing good. All right. Well, we only have this week, and actually next week, um, in the book of Genesis, until we kind of hit pause for a little bit, uh, as I do more of our, our Easter sermon series, and then from there we're going to jump into a few other things before we actually get back into the book of Genesis come late summer, early fall. So Genesis 9 and 10, and then next week, 11. And after chapter 11, we're going to hit pause for a little bit. But I hope that this study through the book of Genesis has been encouraging for you. And just to remind us all, in case you have not been with us through the whole series, uh, we've been seeing quite a few different major themes develop in the book of Genesis, the ones that run through all of the story of Scripture. And some of those, as we've seen, that God is the creator of all things, right? He created the earth. He created the animals. He created humanity. But we also saw that sin has entered into the picture. Sin, being that rebellion against God, entered into the picture early on in the book of Genesis. And we've been seeing the consequences of that sin unravel through the latest chapters. So we saw that the sin um, with Cain and Abel and the judgment of God there. Then we saw just sin continue to, to grow into the hearts of humanity to where God decided to judge the world because of the sin and, and flooded it and flooded the world. But yet we also saw that commitment to God's plan of salvation. The plan of salvation that he gave to our first parents, Adam and Eve, when he said, through your line, Eve, I am going to send someone that is going to undo the curse that has been brought upon. The curse of death, the curse of, of Satan and his, his influence to humanity. So we've seen that even with the sin still perversing all of human life, God has been faithful to still keep his promises. And so Noah and his family, the reason why they were preserved, the reason why they were brought into this ark of salvation was because God was keeping his promise to bring about a Savior. And then last week we looked at how God's covenantal promise in this post-flood world would continue. And one of the signs of the promise And the sign of that we have a covenantal God is of the rainbow. Now today, we're going to continue to see that line, that seed of Eve, play out. How is God going to bring about a Savior, even though there is a lot of sin and wickedness in this world? Even though, despite God bringing a great judgment against the world, there was still sin present in a post-flood world. And why was that? Because he still saved sinners. Right? So Noah... And his sons will see, though they were chosen by God, there is still this aspect that there is still, all of their sin has not been fully atoned for, has not been removed yet. That's why the Savior to come is needed. 
But what I think what we're going to see in Genesis 9 and 10 today is we're going to see that, that big theme of the Bible be, be highlighted for us. And here's what I mean by that. So the Bible, right, so this book is made up of 66 individual books. But yet, despite that there's 66 individual books, they tell one big story. And what is that story? It's the story of God's grace towards sinners. It's the story that despite sin, God is always moving his plan for this world and humanity forward. And we're going to see that, I hope, clearly in our text today. But before I actually read through um, you know, quite some lengthy passages of scripture, I do want to just take another moment. I just want to pray for us. I want to pray for you. And as I'm praying for you, I just ask that you would pray for me. That way we would all be able to walk out of here just knowing Christ, loving Christ more than when we first walked in. So let's go ahead and do that. Let's pray together. Well, Father, I thank you just for another moment that we can just come before you in prayer. Because truthfully, Lord, that we desperately need you. We desperately need your word. And God, although that you have placed me in a role to to exalt your word this morning. I know that the power is not in my words, but in your word. And so I pray that you would just allow your word to go forth this morning. And we know that when your word goes forth, it always accomplishes its purposes. God, we also want to pray for our little kiddos next door and the teachers as they serve just the littlest hearts that we have in this building this morning. Um, Even though we may be in two separate rooms, we share the same goal, and that is to grow in our knowledge of you, Jesus, and who you are, that we would grow in our knowledge and understanding of the God of the Bible. And so, God, I pray for them as I pray for all of us in here, and it's under your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 1030. Two. I'm going to just go ahead and read it in entirety, including all those wonderful names. But let me go ahead and begin. Verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Okay, chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. 
the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyros. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphoth, and Kogamash, Togamar. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Hevelah, Sapta, Ramah, and Sabdeca. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria, and he built Nineveh, Rehoboam, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah. This, that is, the great city. Egypt fathered Ludum, Ananim, Lahabim, Nahunim, Pathrusim, Kaluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaftorim. Bear with me, guys. <laughs> Verse 15. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, and the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, and the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Samarites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zoboim, as far as Lashah. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asur, Arpashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons, the name of whom was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shalaf, Hazmaphath, Sharar, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abamael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All of these were in the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Misha in the direction of Safar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clan, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of, of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these nations, the, spread, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> yeah, thanks be to God. You don't have to clap for that. It wasn't good. <laughs> we'll save that for something better. You know, truthfully, um, I practice these names. <laughs> And, 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 and here's how you do it, is, you know, you pull up um, a good audio Bible, and you listen to how they did it. It did not help, clearly. <laughs> Hebrew's tough. Hebrew's a tough language to speak. I think, you know, there's, there's certain ways that you, you know, enunciate those letters that are different in English. And, and I have a problem enunciating English letters, let alone Hebrew names. So thank you for your, for your grace in that. And if you got any ideas for some, some good names, there you have it. <laughs> All right. So the title of today's sermon is Cursing and Blessing. Cursing and Blessing. And the reason for that is, by and large, I think in this section, 
uh, we see some of the plan of God play out, but we also see this language of cursing and blessing. And we'll explain what, what does that mean? Why does God use those words? But what I want to show you from a, just an application level also, church, is I want to show you in our text, we'll see how people respond to sin. How humanity, how certain individuals actually respond to sin. Because I think that makes all the difference in this life. Is how do you respond to sin? Because the text mentions it. But yet it doesn't ever excuse it. It never belittles it. It never says it doesn't matter. Even this post-flood world with Noah and his sons, and we saw this last week, God expected sin to be there, because even though it was a, a new world, it was no garden. God is constantly teaching how to respond to sin from our perspective. But I think even more importantly, though, we'll also see how God responds to sin in our section today. So here in the latter part of chapter 9, uh, we are given this unique story of Noah, aren't we? Unique story of Noah and his sons. And then in chapter 10, right, we saw that lineage of God's, or of Noah's sons kind of play out. Where did these different sons go? What were their lines? Who, who were their sons throughout human history? But let's go ahead and just start back in chapter 9. Let's start looking at verse 18, where we are once again introduced to the sons of Noah, right? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. No problem there, right? We've actually seen that list multiple times already in the book of Genesis. But notice there's something different this time around. We see a little parenthetical note which Moses adds here when he introduces the sons. And you'll see that at the end of verse 18. When it says, Ham was the father of Canaan. Was the father of Canaan. And then Moses actually says it again in verse 22, when he says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, and then continues with the story. So Moses wants his readers, right, his audience, his initial audience then, the Israelites, and us by extension today, to, to know that Canaan is connected to Ham. And it's very particular. Because we also, we're not told of, right, any of the, the sons of, of Japheth or Shem here. So why is Moses highlighting that Canaan was the son of Ham. Well, I believe is because Canaan, the land of Canaan, and the people of Canaan is going to play a very big role in the future of Israel. And in fact, if you were to continue to read through what is known as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you'll see the land of Canaan or the people of Canaan mentioned a whole lot. And that's important for us to understand, because, you know, I'm breaking this up very small portions as we study through the book of Genesis. But in all truthfulness, the book of Genesis is meant to be read as one book with its four other partners, right? It's meant to be read with Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And you'll see Moses talk about Canaan a lot in those books, and so this is the first time Noah's given us insight of where those people came from. Why those people are going to be important. And I think most important is because 
further on, God is going to call people to go into the land of Canaan. And I'll, I'll mention that in a little bit. But first, I want to actually talk about what we're told about Noah and his sons here. Because it's a, it's a pretty weird story, right? Noah, right? This man of faith, right? This man that we were told that walked with God, that, that found favor in God's sight, right? Was chosen to be this patriarch of the Ark of Salvation. And what does he do? He starts working the soil. That's a good thing, right? That's, that's echoes of the garden, right? Echoes of what God initially told humanity to do. And we, we've said that Noah is like a second Adam. So that's a good thing. But like Adam, Noah also failed, right? He failed. Because what happens? It says that he got drunk off his own vineyard and ended up laying uncovered, passed out in his tent. In his tent. Now, to be clear, there's not a whole lot of commentary on those actions of Noah, right? There's not a whole, whole lot of Moses getting into how this happened, why it happened, or even some of the moral implications of Noah's drunkenness here. It actually doesn't really get into it, and I think because his emphasis is on something else, but I do think pastorally, I want to take a moment and address what we actually do read in the text, and that's drunkenness. Because there's some, when it comes to alcohol, in their culture, and I think our culture today, it's something that needs to be talked about. It's something that needs to be addressed. And I want to go from it from a biblical perspective. And I want to tell you that alcohol, or alcohol consumption in and of itself, is not sinful. It's not sinful. In fact, the Bible, I think, makes this pretty clear. Um, Psalm 104.15 talks about how wine was given by God to gladden the heart of man. With Jesus, one of the very first recorded miracles of Jesus was when he turned water into wine at a wedding festival. So I think if alcohol or any consumption of alcohol was sinful, Jesus didn't know that, right? So clearly that's not what the Bible is getting at. However, the Bible is also just as clear that drunkenness, though, is a sin. Drunkenness is going beyond the bounds of the usefulness in which God has given alcohol to his people. That there is no situation in where drunkenness is encouraged or, or made light of. But it's, the Bible repeatedly calls it a sin. It's a rebellion against God and his good gift in which he's given us. And I know for many in this room, you know the, the great pain and consequences, including myself, of alcohol abuse. Of what that can do, not only to you, but also can do to every single else who is involved in your life. And even those outside of your life. So I want to be very clear that alcohol in itself is not a sin. Drunkenness is and so we, as a church, we hold that the consumption of alcohol, it's a matter of personal conscience. It's a matter of, of what is the best way for you to follow Christ in. And there may, and I counsel people all the time on this, there are people who I would say, you should abstain from alcohol use right now, completely. And maybe forever. Because right now, it is a, a thorn in your own flesh that you just don't have the ability to use it wisely or inappropriately. 
And so we all have to make that decision. But we also don't make that decision by ourselves, too, church. I hope you know that. Like, if you're not quite sure where you want to stand on that issue, I would say seek out counsel. Seek out those who you're trying to walk with Christ with and say, is this helpful for my relationship with him and my witness to this world? Those are questions that we have to ask ourselves. So then going back to our text then, if, that's, if there's no moral commentary on this story, why in the world did Moses include this? Right? Why in the world are we reading about Noah's drunkenness? Well, I think because what happens next is what Moses actually wants to get at. And that's not the sin of Noah, but it's the sin of Ham. So let's look at our Bibles again. In verse 22 it says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. <coughs> Uh, real quickly, I, I didn't mention this before, but I, I want to before I get to Ham. I think there's also a reason why we see the, this little blurt of, of Noah's life in here. And that's because the Bible is unapologetic to always cast every person as a realistic person. right? The Bible does not shy away from s- showing us that people are sinful, that we are sinful. That they are, even though we could be walking with God, right? We could have great moments in trusting in the works of God. Does that mean that we are finished products? Or that we are not capable of sinning? I think Noah shows us that. He shows us that. So even though almost everybody in the Bible, every, if we were to use that terminology, heroes of the faith or founding fathers in our faith, almost every single one of them, is shown in a very poor light in some respect at times. Because the Bible's also, that it's realistic, right? It wants us to understand that the only hero of the Bible, right, the only sinless person in the Bible is who? Jesus Christ. And so the Bible goes at great lengths to always remind us that this person is not the Savior. Noah is not the Savior. Jesus is still the Savior. And so it's always getting at that. But I think even personally, I think what the Bible is also communicating in this moment is that you're not defined by your sin, right? You're not defined by what you have done or maybe what has been done to you in a sinful way. That you don't have to identify with your sin, that I am this. Because the hope of the gospel, right, the hope of the church, the hope of us, is not that we present our lives sinless before the throne of grace, but we present ourselves as needing grace before the throne of grace. Because who sits on the throne of grace? The only sinless one, Jesus Christ, who also is the one who bore our sin on the cross. The Bible uses the language that he became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. You see, The Bible is always trying to highlight that God is moving towards sinners, not away from them. Not away from them. So I think even in that little, you know, few lines about Noah and his own sin, we see that Noah was not defined by that sin. Because when we, and we've looked at this in the past, I don't have a slide for this, but over in Hebrews 11, when the author of Hebrews in the New Testament talks about Noah, what does he talk about? Does he talk about Noah's sin? No. He talks about Noah's faith. 
that Noah had faith in God, a faith that was given to him. And so church, I want you to hear this pastorally, that you are not what you have done. Doesn't mean that you stay there. Doesn't mean that you forget about it in the sense of, like, it doesn't matter. But you let any sin or any reminder of sin draw you back to the throne of grace. That's what repentance is. It's turning from sin and turning to Christ. Because you are no longer at peace living in that sin anymore. And so I think that's important for us to remember as we see a lot of people fail in the Bible. A lot of people fail, right? We'll continue to see this as we go through Genesis, right? Guys like Abraham fail, right? Guys like Joseph fail in some respect. So as we continue to go through, remember, who's the hero of the Bible? It's Jesus, right? That Sunday school answer, right? Do you know why it's a good answer? Because it's right, right? Most of the time, it's right. All right, now I want to get to him. Because this is weird. And it's a little bit hard to, to, I think, fully understand in some respect. But, so what is, what is going on here when it says that, that Ham saw the nakedness of his father? Well, truthfully, we don't really quite know. We don't really quite know what that, that, what Moses is trying to communicate in this very moment. I will say that term, to see someone's nakedness throughout the rest of Bible, can be connected to all kinds of different sexual perversions. We don't know if that's going on here. We don't know if Ham is participating in some kind of voyeurism with his father, or, or maybe he's just greatly disrespecting his father. We don't really quite know, but what we do know is that there was sin involved. Sin in which Ham did not repent of. Because we see he comes out and wants to get his brothers involved. And there's no repentance from the lips of Ham. And so in verses 23 to 24, we see Shem and Japheth, the other brothers, right, walk backwards and cover their father's nakedness, right? Not allowing any opportunity for sin, whatever that was, to be present in their life. And so they walk backwards and they cover their dad with a garment. This also reminds us that's, that's foreshadowing the work of the gospel, right? When God covers our nakedness, he covers our shame with his own garment. Even though we're dead in our trespasses, right? No way of covering ourselves. He provides a covering. Robes of righteousness is what it, what it refers to with a Christian. And so Shem and Japheth, they walk backwards not to look at their dad, and they cover him. Then in verse 24, we see that Noah wakes up. Somehow he knows about what Ham has done, and he begins to speak. And this is actually the first time that we see Moses speak in the book of Genesis. First time we're seeing Ham speak, and it's one of cursing, and it's one of blessing. And I want to look at both of those. So look at verse 25. Noah speaks, and he, and he curses somebody. But who does he curse? Canaan. Not Ham. Ham's son, Canaan. Which is interesting, right? Like, what did Canaan have to do with this? Well, 
We don't really quite know. But what we do see is that Moses, right, he's setting up that story of God's people in Canaan that will continue throughout the rest of the Pentateuch. And specifically, why Israel, or why the people of God, have this tension with the people of Canaan. Moses is tracing this back. This is where it all started, right? He's given that family history. This is where that conflict all started. But like I said, we don't exactly know then, but why in this instance, why Canaan was cursed and not him. What I would say, though, is if we actually look at the people of Canaan, right, that family line that develops, where they end up indwelling, which becomes known as the land of Canaan, um, they seem to be participating in the very same things that Ham was participating in. I don't have time to go into it today, but if, if you were to make a note, over in Leviticus 18, you'll see Moses talk about the works and the worship of Canaanites, of the people of Canaan. And you'll see very familiar language there to this whole observing nakedness there and all of the perversions that go along with it. So clearly, the people of Canaan followed in their footsteps, right, of their great-great-great-grandfather Ham. They followed in those footsteps. Meaning that Canaan was discipled like every single one of us are, right? They were taught how to live life, which I don't know if you guys know this, and the Bible uses discipleship to explain that. What does it mean to, to live life? What does it mean to follow somebody else, to learn right, how to glorify God or how to worship? We're all taught how to worship, right? We're all following someone or something on what the purpose of this life is. And so we're just seeing the consequences of that discipleship with Canaanites. But I think for us, church, that means we can't dismiss right, the influence that we actually have on our kids. We can't dismiss that we have a vital role into showing our kids what it looks like to walk with God, to worship God. Because there could be dire consequences if you hand off that discipleship to someone else. Dire consequences to that. Because the question is not if you're leading right, your kiddos, right? It's just a matter to where. We're all leading those that God has entrusted to us. And I know, I know for many of you guys in this room, right, your kids are grown, right? They're, they're adults. But I would say there is, it's never too late, though, to show them what it looks like to walk with God and to help them understand that. It's never too late. So Moses is showing this tension between the nation of Israel that will come later on and the people of Canaan. Canaanites. And if you're curious, if you want to jump ahead, the book of Joshua is all about when Israel actually goes into this land of Canaan um, and, and takes it over, because that's a place that God has given to the people of God. That's what the book of Joshua is all about. And so Moses curses the Canaanites. And to be cursed is, means to, that there's evil or harm invoked upon you because of sinful actions. So Moses is giving this prophecy then, I believe, about this future conquering of Canaan to the people of Shem in, these, in the days to come. In chapter 10, 
um, which I won't be able to spend a whole lot of time in later on. I think you guys got a pretty good picture that it's these genealogies, right, what came out of these sons. But if you guys are maybe familiar with Bible study, you probably recognize a lot of names as we read through that list, right? You probably recognize the names of Babel or Babylon, Nineveh, Sodom, Gomorrah, all of these places, these people that ended up being the cities named after them that came out of this line of Ham. So we see this future, basically, understanding of why there's going to be conflict in the world. Now, I also wanted to talk about the blessing, because Moses also gives a, or not Moses, Noah also gives a blessing here as well. Let me point that over to you in verse 26, <clears throat> where he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now, here's something very interesting about the blessing. Who did God actually, or who did Noah actually bless? The God of Shem. Not Shem directly. But then it makes a no, it is the God of Shem. Now why is that all important? It's showing us that Shem was already in some kind of covenantal relationship with God. He was walking with God. The God of the Bible was the God of Shem. And so when Noah says hey, I'm going to bless your Lord, Shem. What he was communicating there is that Shem knew that every blessing that would ever come to him always came through the God who was over his life. That it wasn't because of him as a person, but because of his relationship with a God, a good God who's in complete control of overall the world. Now, Shem's history would also be really important in the history of the world, too. So we see a lot of that in chapter 10. And if you want to look ahead, over at the end of chapter 11, we actually see more of Shem's lineage play out all the way to Abram, which then became known as Abraham, which then became the nation of Israel. So Shem's line ended up becoming the nation of Israel, or the Jewish people. And in case you ever wondered, that's where that word Semite comes from. You're you're probably more familiar with the word anti-Semitic, right, when referring to an anti-Jewish language or or comments. Well, Semite comes from Shemite, which comes from Shem. So what that is, if you were to trace that back also, it means that Shem then became known as a Shemite, and then just the way that language progressed, they became known as Semites. So to be anti-Semite is to be anti-Shemite. Just in case you're wondering about that. <laughs> I didn't know about this beforehand. I thought it was really interesting. But what's the big idea? God is always on the move, church. He's always moving things according to his purpose in this world, no matter what. Now, there's another blessing in some ways in verse 27 with the last son, the son Japheth. And it says in verse 27, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shen and let Canaan be his servant. So in some way, there's, there's kind of a little mystery to like, okay, what does that mean that Japheth will be under the tent of Shem here? 
Um, the scholars don't know exactly, you know, what Knowles was trying to communicate in that moment, but looking back, or from our perspective, like looking back on what did God do with these two lineages, we actually see that God's plan was going to incorporate more people than just the Jewish nation. That Japheth, in some way, was going to be under the umbrella of God's mercy and God's grace and God's revelation to who he is. And so where do we see this play out? With Gentiles, right? Gentiles is a people group that are, if you're you know, not Jewish, you're a Gentile. And, and so even though there's not a direct fulfillment of this blessing in verse 27, most scholars then actually point us over to Ephesians 3. And I have a slide for this, Lee. When Paul is talking about how the good news of Jesus Christ is not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And it says this in verse 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So even all the way back here in Genesis 9, we're seeing God's plan for the world is going to be for all peoples. All peoples. That even though there's a, right, the Jews received this special revelation from God first, it didn't end with them. Much of the New Testament, much of even Jesus' teaching in the New Testament, is reminding the Jewish people that they were given this first, but it was not meant to stay with them. They were to welcome people in to the mercy in which they had received. So why does this all matter? I think it's an important question for us to ask. Why does it all matter then? Why does Japheth matter, right, in his lineage? Well, I'm thankful because I'm not a Jew, right? Don't come from a Jewish background. So in some ways, my understanding of Christ, right, my understanding of who he is, is I'm under this promise that was given to Japheth. That even though that I am not from a Jewish race, I'm still under the umbrella in some unique way, which I'm thankful for. Which really goes to another main theme throughout the whole Bible, is that no matter your ethnicity, right, no matter what you have done, no matter your background, your hope is not in those things. Your hope is in the promise and fulfillment of God. He's the one. He's the one. So our, our hope is in the one who has fulfilled those promises of God, Jesus Christ. Even the cursed nation of Canaan. For those of you who know your Bible, you probably know of a, of a Canaanite that played an instrumental role in the plan of God and participated in the salvation of God. It was a young girl named Rahab. Named Rahab. Who was known as a prostitute in the land of Canaan when Israel went into that country and she actually helped the people of God um, accomplished their purposes there. In Rahab, this Canaanite, even though she was from Canaan, right, she was from this, this cursed nation, she still found favor in the eyes of God. Just because, right, you are under the umbrella of all of this generational sin, it does not mean that God cannot break through into your life. We even see Rahab in the genealogy of Jesus over in the book of Matthew. That she not only was a Canaanite who had a role in the plan of God, she actually is part of the family lineage of Jesus. 
speaking that God works all things for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Which I just find absolutely magnificent. That no matter where you come from, God is always at work. Even if you are way down the list of some intense generational sin, that you've been following the patterns of your fathers and their fathers and their fathers, does that mean that God is somehow thwarted by that? And I think that there's probably people in this room, whether that calling is fresh to you today, or maybe it was fresh to you the day that Jesus saved you, revealed who he is to you, that you are the first person in your family line that he's going to say, no more. No more. I am calling you out of that, and I'm calling you to my purposes, to follow me, to walk with me. And so no longer is there going to be this generational repetition of sin, but there's going to be this generational repetition of worship. And I pray that is for every single one of us. So church, as we finish this last scene then with Noah, let's not forget what those last right eight or nine chapters have been teaching us, that God is moving his plan forward, always moving it forward. And even some of these names all right, that we see in chapter 10, we're going to see God's fulfillment there later on. So in some way, I'm not going to get into chapter 10 because I want you to continue to read through the rest of the Pentateuch. See, okay, where did these people go? What did God do here? Because we worship an historical God. I've said this repeatedly. Christianity is not just some philosophical worldview, right? It's not just something that we go, I think this is the best way for us to live our lives. Christianity is about the, the historical person of God working through history and saving sinners along the way until his final purposes will be revealed in the days to come. So I pray that every single one of us this morning, that we would embrace that God, right? Embrace the covenantal God who is working according to his will. Because can, can you imagine... Can you imagine in our community if we actually were radical in our maybe openness about sin, but also openness in the God who paid the penalty for our sin? Can you imagine what that could do to our community? I think it could do a lot. And I think Genesis 9 and 10 is showcasing that no matter where you come from, no matter the situations, it doesn't mean that we excuse sin, right? We're, we're called to live to follow Christ, but we're called to exalt his work, not our own. So let's do that today, church. Let's walk out of here, and especially as we're, you know, we'll finish up chapter 11 next week, but especially as we get into Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, we have a lot of celebrating to do, because this God, the God of Genesis 9 and 10, has been doing a lot, and we're going to celebrate some of those specific things in those coming days. But let's go ahead and end there and just remember the God who not only gives curses out, but the God who took on the curse for us on the tree. Let's remember him. All right, church, let's go ahead and pray. Well, Father, as we just end our time in your word this morning, I, I just want to thank you I want to thank you that you do not shy away from the effects of sin. 
you do not shy away from just all the ways that we can really mess things up in this world. But despite all of that, Lord, you have been moving and fulfilling that promise to bring a seed into this world, a seed that would take on Satan's sin and death. All of the consequences of that first rebellion that not only we inherited, but also participated in ourselves. God, I thank you that that promised seed continued in Genesis 9 and 10. And that we get to look back on today and just marvel at what seems like a really complex, maybe unfathomable situation that we can't, we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You are already always know what you are doing in those circumstances. So whether it's not even our own sin, Lord, but it's just the effects of sin in this world, I pray that you would allow us just to trust you more today, to walk out of here just loving you, needing you, and trusting you than when we first walked in. And it's in your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.